Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I use she and they pronouns. This episode is a special mini-episode. It's a follow-up episode on the last one in which we talked with a firearms instructor about how to get started with firearms for self and community defense, as well as you know potentially survival. And this proved to be not specifically controversial, but certainly uh, an episode that brought out more different opinions and I got more feedback on it than I get on most episodes. And so I feel like it's worth addressing a lot of that feedback in a follow-up. And this episode is just me, so bear with me. You won't have an entertaining guest to listen to. Just me. But before we get started... This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another podcast on the network. What's up, y'all? This is Mitch from the Red Strings and Maroons podcast. Each episode, we dig into the little-known histories of armed revolt and community defense against oppression in the so-called United States. We focus on helping curate an ongoing discussion surrounding firearms and the skills needed for defense from an anti-fascist and anti-authoritarian perspective. To listen to each episode, check us out on redstringsandmaroons.com, subscribe on iTunes, or check us out on the Channel Zero Network. I want to start off this episode by talking about infighting. Just a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. I want to talk about infighting because I think one of the reasons that the left infights so much is essentially an authoritarian urge to control other people's tactics and strategy. And when I think about being critical of other people's tactics and strategies, what I try to do, it's hard, but I I try, I try to disentangle ethical concerns from strategic concerns. There are so many things that people do that I don't consider strategic, that I consider unstrategic or even counter to my aims. But just because something, someone is doing something that's even counter to my aims doesn't mean that they're acting unethically. And, and that's where I personally draw the line. If someone is doing something that I don't consider strategic... I might talk to them about it. I might even be critical of it, but I'm not trying to be critical of them as a person. And I'm also not trying to stop them from doing what it is they want to do. I think that the authoritarian urge to try and control people and tell them what to do is bad strategy. And more importantly, it's, it's bad ethics. And I will try to stop people who are doing things that I consider actively wrong. I don't consider it wrong to damage property, I might sometimes consider it unstrategic. I don't consider it wrong to nonviolently resist the police, even if I think sometimes it's unstrategic. I think sometimes maybe uh, a more active resistance would be a better plan. But I'm not trying to tell people what to do. And a poet who died this week, uh, Diane De Prima, she has a quote that's been sitting with me a lot. It's from her poem, Revolutionary Letter Number 8. No one way works. It will take all of us shoving at the thing from all sides to bring it down. I actually only became aware of that quote in that poem uh, only a couple weeks ago, 
and it's sort of heartbreaking to suddenly discover a poet who you're very excited about, um, an old anarchist beat poet, and then find out that she died a couple weeks later. But I think she's right. No one way works. And diversity of tactics is absolutely vital. And it's something that I think a good leftist strategy needs to understand is that it needs to be a strategy that encompasses multiple strategies. If your strategy doesn't allow for individuals and affinity groups and communities to do things that are outside of your strategy, it's literally a bad strategy and it's going to be ineffective. We need to play into the strength that comes from diversity instead of trying to force a false unity. Okay, so what does that have to do with firearms? Well, there are a lot of tactics that I personally consider non-strategic, and I'm going to be critical of them in this episode. But I want to be clear that the ways in which I'm being critical of them is not to condemn the people who participate in these strategies and not necessarily to try to stop them, but merely to say my piece and say what I believe about the efficacy and non-efficacy of certain strategies. And specifically, when we talk about firearms, we need to talk about what we're not talking about. And for the most part, most of us are not talking about armed street conflict. And we're also not necessarily talking about clandestinity. And I think both of these are bad strategies. Personally, I've been under the impression for a number of years, and I think that my observation of anarchist movements uh, across the globe supports this. Clandestinity is where movements go to die. Uh, clandestinity often arises as movements begin to fail. Uh, a big popular movement will gain a lot of ground and start becoming popular, but then once the repression hits and the movement starts to shrink, the people who are left feel more desperate and feel like they need to escalate their choice and tactics and move towards nighttime actions, move towards actions with small groups uh, attempting to accomplish various things. And I, I just generally think that this is um, not effective. And personally, I think that the most effective strategies are ones that involve public action. It can be public action where we try not to get caught, but it still involves people doing things in the public eye because it's only through doing things in the public eye that we can engage with multiple communities, that we can have our tactics generalize. And I think the strength of the uprisings of this summer comes from the fact that they are both militant and also um, non-clandestine for the most part. I do think that a lot of movements can have healthy interactions with clandestinity. I think that the environmental movement has at various points done fairly good with this, where there is active support from the above ground movement for the underground movement. But I think that overall this is rare. And the other thing that I'm not talking about, when I talk about public mass actions, I'm also not talking about armed street conflict in a deadly sense. Um, and personally, I think that our advantage, it plays to our advantages when we attempt to stop fascists 
through often through through violence and through fighting them, but not necessarily trying to engage with them with lethal force. I think that this is strategically plays to our strengths. Our strengths are numbers, mobility, decentralization, uh, having each other's backs. Our strengths are not specifically the capacity to inflict lethal force. Those are two ways in which I want to make sure that people know that personally I'm not advocating when it comes to learning firearms. I'm not advocating clandestine action and I'm not advocating what could be construed as war. However, I am advocating firearms for three purposes. For survival, which is probably honestly the rarest and not the most useful form of firearms, but and I'm advocating for understanding of firearms for people who choose to use that as an effective form of self-defense and for people who choose to use that as an effective form of community defense. So that's what I'm talking about and what I'm not talking about. But everyone is going to be talking about something different, and that's okay. And we should engage with each other about each other's strategies, but we need to be careful not to... Well, I've said this already a million goddamn times. I just don't fucking like infighting. Um, it's not infighting against authoritarians. But it, it just literally isn't because uh, our goal is to create a free society and authoritarians, that's not their goal. <laughs> so I have to say that way too much. Okay, so I want to draw people back to two different episodes, uh, a sort of pro and con about this. Um, I want to draw people back to the episode with Paul, who's talking about what most people will call Rojava, the autonomous area of northern Syria. And in it, Paul talks about two things. One, he talks about, I believe he talks about this, and if not, um, you know, this happened in history, recent history, the defense of the city of Kobani, in which ISIS attacked a city, and they lost. And they lost because, like, basically, like, grandmothers with shotguns drove them off. And the other thing that Paul talked about is that one thing that he learned there was the idea that community defense, or in this case, armed conflict, needs to be specifically something that only is for specialized people. And, you know, specifically like young, able-bodied men was just not his experience while he was there and realizing that people learning how to defend themselves, um, I mean, firearms are very good force equalizer, you know, um, to some degree, the amount to which you're able-bodied is less important when you're defending yourself with firearms than it does with other weapons. But I also want to draw your attention to another episode we did with Smokey about, I think it was called um, Better Forms of Organization or something like that. And Smokey goes on a, a very excellent, um, well, it's not a rant, uh, makes a bunch of excellent points against guns and against guns as part of anarchist practice. And I think it's absolutely worth listening to and considering because when you add guns into a situation, you are... Mm. you're basically allowing individuals to exert an incredible amount of force on each other. And that will always cause conflict and it'll always cause power imbalances. 
And it will always be really complicated from the point of view of trying to create an egalitarian society. Even again, if we look at the autonomous regions of northern Syria, as an example, we can see that there is a tension. It's a tension that I, I don't want to be you know, mad at them about. It's a necessary tension. But there's a tension between trying to have a military force to defend themselves, from uh, first from ISIS and now from Turkey, and with trying to create an egalitarian, non-hierarchical society it it's hard it's hard to do and guns and armies and things like that fuck with it real hard possibly not as hard as it would fuck with it if they were all killed by various fascist forces so sometimes firearms are probably necessary and that's the perspective that I personally have on it. I also have on it a, a personal belief in self-defense and, you know, I'm someone who's been doxxed and have people sort of actively threatening me. And so because people are actively threatening me, I, I look to be able to defend myself if necessary. That was one of the main things that people seem to be talking about is like, what, you know, what is she talking about when she talks about firearms, right? Uh, I guess I'll make another point on firearms for survival. Firearms for survival are pretty much for hunting. I guess you also have like firearms for survival for like the post-apocalyptic wasteland with like the evil warlords or whatever. Um, but honestly, that just ties into social struggle in general. Um, because the apocalypse isn't an event, it's a process. And, you know, um, the evil warlords are already here. But uh, when it comes to hunting, firearms are an effective form of hunting. However, we can't expect large numbers of people to feed themselves with hunting. Um, it's been a long time since I read this, but I remember reading somewhere that during the Great Depression, like squirrels and deer were hunted like near to extinction in huge chunks of the United States. There's just like our food systems are not set up for foraging and hunting for mass numbers of people. That's not to say that individuals shouldn't learn how to survive uh, through hunting, if that's what interests them. And a lot of the weapons we're talking about already are very effective for hunting, specifically the AR-15 is a effective hunting rifle. And But for smaller game, you can also look at a twenty two or uh, even an air gun. And air guns, pellet guns, are substantially easier to learn with, safer. They you know, can be used to kill squirrels and birds and things like that. Um, you know, I don't personally want to run around and kill squirrels and birds and things like that. Or deer, uh, I'm vegan, but, you know, everyone is going to handle their food ethics differently. Okay, so one of the other things that I heard from people is why the AR-15. The AR-15 as a first gun is a very intimidating thing for a lot of people. I know that a lot of people, you know, less than a year ago might have been anti-gun, right? And are only changing their mind on that as they look at a society in which fascism is ascendant. If you're coming from a traditional left or especially a progressive or democratic background, first of all, welcome. Uh, glad you're here. Like very, very literally glad you're here. But also, um, if so, the assault rifles are scary, right? They are exactly the gun that all media, all democratic media, all liberal media has been saying are inherently bad for a very long time. And 
And so it's, it's, it's quite an escalation to go from uh, maybe I should get a firearm to maybe I should own an AR-15. And yet I stand by my advocacy of this. However, it's not going to work for all people and everyone's needs are going to be different. And two of the ways that people have been kind of edging their way into firearms or even just like meeting their own personal distaste for this are working with other platforms. Uh, one person that I've talked to, for example, wanted an effective rifle that shoots a, you know, a round that can be used for community defense or hunting or any other purpose that is not assault style, that does not have a pistol grip, that does not have, you know, that may, might have a wood stock or whatever instead of um, all black tactical plastic or whatever, right? And a good gun for that is the Mini-14. The Mini-14 shoots exactly the same ammunition as an AR-15, but it looks much more like a traditional hunting rifle. It can take magazines. It does take magazines. I think you need magazines to use it. Um, it's a little bit uh, harder to accessorize. It's a little bit harder to put a light on. Um, and it's, you know, these things can be done. Um, I mean, also you can literally just duct tape a flashlight to the side of your gun if that concerned about it, um, which is not a long-term solution and not specifically what I'm advocating. But the Mini-14 would be something to look into. The other thing that someone came up with and a lot of people echoed was, why am I not talking about a 22 rifle as a beginner's rifle? Uh, for anyone who's listening who's familiar with firearms, it's very likely that this was the first gun you shot. Uh, the first gun that I shot was a bolt-action 22 LR, um, you know, hunting rifle essentially at a range when I was like 12 or 13. And 22s are a really good starting rifle for people who are intimidated by guns. And uh, I, I kind of wish I had gone over that more. If you're intimidated by guns, 22 LR is available in both handguns and rifles. I would personally recommend um, as a starting gun a uh, 22 bolt action or semi-automatic rifle it is a small hunting gun it is a it's much quieter you still want to use hearing protection but it's like substantially quieter it doesn't kick as much it's just not as scary and a lot of us have ptsd and a lot of us uh, are really jumpy when we hear loud bangs and things like that and so 22 is a a good gun to consider for that um also so is a pellet gun to be honest but the reason that I, I don't specifically advocate 22s for like all people as a starting gun, especially if you're, I mean, if like you're trying to move into being a gun person, then 22LR is a, a great rifle. But if you're trying to just like own a gun for prepping, a 22LR is not an effective self-defense round. It is, um, it just doesn't, kill people as easily. Um, and so, which is like cool for practice and not as cool for, unfortunately, the purpose of a firearm. The main purpose of most firearms is to kill people. And it's fucked up and complicated. Um, so a 22 LR is good training. It's good practice. It's a good survival rifle. A lot of people who are like considering subsistence survival like the idea of a 22 also its ammunition is still somewhat available it's much cheaper 
And although it gets bought up a lot, it's kind of complicated right now. Um, it's also much lighter if you're going to be backpacking or something like that. It's a you can carry a lot more ammunition than you could with nine millimeter or two two three. And there's also folding versions. It's a backpacking uh, version of the I think the ten twenty two. Basically, just there's versions that you can fold up and put in your backpack. Uh, and that is great if your goal is to go into the woods and shoot neat squirrels, which is not most people's means of survival. Just It's just not. But possibly it is where you are and who you are, in which case 22 is, is good for that. Um, yeah, I'm sure people have lots of opinions about this and let me know I'm wrong and I'm also probably wrong. I, you know, I consider myself, I'm not a firearms expert. Uh, I consider myself an advanced beginner. I know enough to teach a little bit and I study things from the point of view of prepping. And so that's just the best information that I have. Another thing that I want to talk about is how we learn to shoot and how we talked about this a fair amount, actually, in the episode with Ronan, that, you know, gun spaces are traditionally white, they're traditionally cis, they're traditionally male, they're traditionally hetero. And there's been a lot of work from a lot of different angles to try and break that down and make gun culture more accessible to more types of people. But one of the things that kind of matters, um, especially for, hmm, I don't know if it's especially but it's something that I experience as a woman and talking to other women and people perceived as women by society that the, the way in which teaching works from this like top down, you know, some guy sort of yells at you about what to do. And then you're just expected to engage with this thing that scares you after being sort of, you know, sternly told what to do or whatever. And, um, it doesn't work for everyone or a lot of people. And, it's completely okay to be like, if you go and you find a firearms instructor and you don't like the way they're teaching you, just be like, I don't like the way that you're teaching me and I'm going to find someone else. Um, or maybe, you know, if they're open to it, give them feedback about it. But if they're not, fuck it, whatever. And one of the things that I've seen really effective that might be kind of controversial is I've seen like beginners teaching beginners. Um, in specifically, I find that this is very good to get over the sort of um, social barriers to learning about firearms. If you have a bunch of people who are like not traditionally given access to firearms through various marginalizations and they get together and have a gun group, that could be really effective, especially if that gun group then like if the way that they engage with experts is that they like kind of bring in the experts as like ringers uh, who aren't like part of, don't become part of the group, but instead like you know, come and like teach some basics and then have the beginners turn around and teach the other beginners the basics. And of course, like safety stuff is paramount and people should know how to safely operate their weapons and things like that. But one of the best ways to be comfortable with your weapons is to teach other people how to shoot your gun. And it can be a really, a really good thing. The biggest downside, the thing to worry about if you're starting one of these sort of like new, um, beginner gun groups is that it's easy to train yourself with the wrong skills and sort of ingrain bad habits. And 
as long as your bad habits aren't safety related, it's not as big of a deal. But you're going to have to at some point, like, you know, maybe relearn your stance or relearn your grip or whatever. But anyway, it's a thing that I've seen and I've seen be effective. And yeah, it's a mini episode, so I'm not going to talk too much more about this stuff. But one other thing that I just wanted to bring up, there's one other thing that I kind of want to talk about in my my little half hour episode, my follow up on guns. And that is that one thing that I think people on both sides of the gun control debate often neglect is the realization, like both will often argue like, well, the other side is racist. And the thing is, is that they're, they're both telling the truth, but not acknowledging that their own position also is built out of white supremacy. We can all look and see that the people who primarily own guns in our culture are police and are rural white people, and especially rural white people who lean towards right wing. And that is the the largest chunk of gun ownership and gun culture in the United States. It's absolutely not all of it. And also certainly not all rural white people are right wing. And most of them are not is mm, roughly my guess. And maybe that's optimistic. I don't know. But the thing that people don't recognize is that gun control, like Hmm. Okay, so gun control is racist, right? Um, the ways that gun control comes into law is, you know, basically like the Black Panthers have guns and then all of a sudden even the NRA is on board with making all these laws against guns because they don't want black people to have guns. That's entirely it. That's, I mean, it's like, it's pretty blatant. And also you'll see, of course, groups like the NRA and various gun advocacy groups largely silent when licensed black gun owners are killed by cops for having guns and gun control laws are absolutely disproportionately used against people of color in inner cities. So gun control, when you're advocating gun control sort of blindly, you're promoting racism and that's not the best thing in the world. It might not be your intention. It almost certainly, if you're listening to this, it hopefully isn't your intention at all. But it's it's the reality of the situation. If you encourage carceral solutions to problems, you are encouraging police to do these things. And the police in this country are uh, racist. It's a racist institution. It's not even just a matter of racist cops. It is a racist institution that comes from racism and perpetuates racism and white supremacy. So and the other thing is, is that if you are advocating disarming the population, but not the police, you aren't saying you're anti-gun. You're literally just saying you only want the monopoly of force to be further put in the racist state's hands. So that's not a good look, right? But let's look at the other side, gun advocacy. Where does gun advocacy come from? Racism. Gun advocacy, as far as I can tell, and I should have put together quotes about this, but it comes from research I did about a year ago. Uh, gun advocacy in the United States comes from basically wanting white settlers to be able to perpetuate racist violence against black and indigenous people, to perpetuate the expansion of and defense of the colonial state against indigenous people, and to protect slavery. So that's why people are supposed to be armed in America. That's where gun culture comes from. It comes from this like frontiersman, and it comes from this you know, just, yeah, 
defensive, really nasty shit. And that continues, of course, to this day. Gun advocacy continues to, you know, largely promote white interests and things like that. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that gun advocacy and gun control are both two sides of the exact same coin. They aren't actually opposed to each other. They are white supremacy. Not all individuals advocating, not all methods of advocating, not all for one way or the other. But that is what the United States is so racist that you cannot be pro or anti-gun, especially as a white person, without furthering white supremacy unless you're really fucking careful. And if gun advocacy or gun control advocacy is something that you're interested in, then you need to be really fucking careful if you're a white person advocating these things. Um, Personally, the best I could recommend is that if you do want to focus on gun rights advocacy, then you need to do so in a way that centers um, black and indigenous people of color as the people who need um, more gun rights rather than centering yourself or trying to be race blind. And if you're anti-gun and, you know, let's be real, you're probably not 30 minutes into this podcast if you're fully anti-gun, but maybe you hate listening to some damn anarchists talking about guns. But either way, if you're anti-gun, which is not inherently an unreasonable position, like guns are really fucking complicated. And, but if you are, I would challenge you to say that you need to start and by start, I mean solely focus, at least for the time being, on disarming the police. Not disarming the police in addition to disarming everyone else, but literally just disarming the police. You can't talk about gun control and specifically taking away people's right to defend themselves if you're just putting all of that uh, access to lethal force on police. Because, because people who have access to police don't need guns as much um, because they have uh, you know people they can call with guns to go do violence on their behalf and that is what so much nonviolence is so much nonviolence is I don't want to be the one who has to commit violence uh, this is not all nonviolence some people actually take these principles very seriously and if that's you I commend you so yeah that's uh, that's my follow-up on firearms and uh, I'll be back probably in a couple days. I'm not quite sure. Um, I've been having a hard time finding people to interview. Uh, I mean, I have people lined up to interview, but everyone's for some strange reason, really busy this week. I, I can't tell maybe like something big's about to happen next week. I, I'm not really sure, but I want to thank everyone who helps make this podcast possible. And if you want to help make this podcast possible, you can do so by telling people about it. You can feed the algorithms that run the world by um, liking and subscribing and rating and reviewing and you know telling your friends on social media um, by liking the Facebook page, which doesn't, Facebook's fucking garbage, um, or following me on Instagram. My Instagram is at Margaret Kiljoy. My Twitter is at Magpie Kiljoy. And if you want to sponsor me more directly and this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy and signing up. And in particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog, Kirk, Willow, Natalie, Sam, Christopher, Shane, and The Compound for making this possible. 
And if you can't afford to support me on Patreon, just don't do it. If you make less money, if you live off of less money than I make on Patreon, I make sure to keep my Patreon numbers visible. Um, don't fucking give me money. I have more money than you. And that's not the way the world's got supposed to fucking work. Um, contact me and I'll get you all of my Patreon content for free. It's songs and zines and things like that. And also anyone who's facing any kind of uh, legal trouble for anything I would support, which is a wide variety of things. You can also message me and I'll try and get you all my content for free. Anyway, I will talk to you all soon and thanks for listening to me ramble without a gust. And I hope you all are as safe as you can be while still trying to keep everyone else safe. <laughs>